We're here this morning with Dan Cummings, an attorney in Naperville whose primary concentration is in the criminal defense department. How are you, Dan? I'm doing well today, Joe. How are you? I'm good. I, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a, I think right in the, you know, stack, smack dab in the middle or maybe even prolonged coronavirus uh, stay-at-home order. And so um, I'm seeing the economy uh, come to a standstill, but uh, we're dealing with it. How, how are things with you on your end? Well, the courts in DuPage County, where I practice mostly, have been down since uh, March 17th. And I think we're due to be down to at least until the second or third week in April. So uh, just trying to do some other things with my files, not really going to court, although I'm going to go to court on Friday because I got an in-custody guy. So uh, it's been slow, but we're trying to do other things to you know keep going. Sure. And, and I, as I was explaining to my clients, uh, all of our lawyers reached out to our clients and we're letting them know that about 95 percent of what we do does not involve going to court. So um, that I don't know if that's true in your your practice, but that's true in, in mine. Yeah. No, my, our practice in criminal law is, is really driven by by court appearances. And and, you know, we're, we're going to court on clients every 30 days. So it's really driven by appearing in court obviously doing other things outside of court, but the court dates are key. So Dan, I, I, uh, I wanted to um, talk to you about a number of things today. I, first of all, I, 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 I've known you for about, I'd say 20 years or so, but I would say that you're probably the most well-read person that I know. I, I, how many books do you read a month? I try to read, two to three a month. I mean, sometimes more depending, but I mean, yeah, I do. I do do a lot of reading. I enjoy that. So I actually right now I'm, I am doing a lot of reading as well right now during this uh, coronavirus pause that we're in. What are you reading right now? Right now, I just, <laughs> you know, it's be topical. I just read a book about the 1918 influenza outbreak. I, I read another book, a science book just about influenza. Uh, and presently, I'm reading this book about uh, 1918, and it focuses in on three people uh, uh, in Boston, a Babe Ruth, uh, a German composer, and a lawyer who went to Harvard who fought in the Great War. And it kind of focuses on, on, on those three people. It's a very interesting book. What's the name of that book? So the book, the book is called War Fever. Oh, is it, it's, so it's a, a book about pre-World War One as well? Yes, but it's it's actually like 1918, so we're just sort of the U.S. is getting into the war. Um, there's a baseball season going on. Babe Ruth is with the Boston Red Sox, uh, and and so I, I I'm about a quarter of the way through it. But uh, I think what it's going to be is the German composer uh, ends up being arrested for allegedly uh, you know espionage and things of that nature, following along with him, and then. Uh, I believe the Harvard lawyer is going to end up uh, over in Europe fighting in the Great War. So it's and it's well written. It's it's written. I think it's guy, a guy by the name of Randy Roberts, who's a professor out of Purdue, who's written a number of history books. But so well, far, it's very good. What, and, and are you reading that on Kindle? Yes, that's I really that's really where I do most of my reading now is on Kindle. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bummer because I would be at your house borrowing 
hard copy books because that's how I like to read books. I'm, <laughs> right. I'm right. in the middle of, um, I don't know why, but I'm reading for the third time uh, Ron Cherno's book, uh, Washington, A Life. I, I, whenever I, I read that book, I get more inspired about, um, you know, kind of the rugged American uh, landscape of, you know, where we come from. And, you know, what we need to do to get through crises. And, and when I read Washington, I, um, you know, it's not a rags to riches story or anything like that, uh, because he did, did come from money. But the total change in paradigm for North America from the time that he was born until the time he died was a, a watershed moment in the world's history. And I, I, I want to figure out how that works. So um, I, I know you've read that book, right? I have. And I mean, he's described by many people as the indispensable American, and I can't imagine a more apt uh, description. As a matter of fact, I would feel pretty good right now if he happened to be reincarnated and he was the leader right now. <laughs> that, would be, that, would be, that would be good. Yeah. I, um, you know, the one thing I like about Chernow books, you know, we, we, I talk to you about them all the time, uh, Hamilton and, and uh, Grant and Washington and um, all those books is that he writes the books and he doesn't try to lionize these people and show only their good side. He shows their actual real side, which, you know, the one, the one thing about Washington is that, you know, he, he had some, you know, some personality issues, you know, he, he had a domineering mother, you know, all this type of stuff that was, very, you know, very interesting. I, I like to know the inside baseball and things. And that's why I kind of like reading these books. Yeah, well, I think in that book, too, he deals with the fact that Washington owned slaves and what that means and how to look at Washington in kind of, a, you know, a more rounded picture as opposed to, you know, the guy that did, you know, did or didn't cut down the cherry tree. Yeah, exactly. So um, <laughs> so what that what's very interesting to me is that you this all hit and then you went to a book on what is probably at least an, an interesting parallel um, it's this the Spanish flu back in, in the early 1900s. What, what can you tell us about that? Well, I mean, I think the difference is uh, what I wanted to do was was find out was there some was there some something we could learn from what happened in 1918. So back in 1918, there was a worldwide flu epidemic. Uh, we really didn't know exactly what had caused it. Uh, really had no uh, prescription for stopping it. Uh, and uh, I think what we did learn a little bit in 1918 was the social distancing issue. And uh, I guess what I learned there was that uh, World War II and the close proximity that people were to each other in terms of armies and things of that nature really caused the spread and the contagion to kind of go worldwide. So what, what years was the Spanish flu? It was in night. It was I, there were two outbreaks. There was a minor outbreak, I believe, maybe in the fall of of seventeen, uh, but then it came back with a fury uh, in the spring of next in, in the spring of the following year, and it killed an incredible number of people. I don't I don't know exactly the numbers, but it was it was bad. It was it was worse, I think, than every war that we've lost people, uh, but for the Civil War. So if you added up all the wars that we've lost, folks, but for the Civil War, 
uh, the Spanish flu in America killed more uh, in 1917-18 than, than those wars combined. Wow. So um, I, I, was, uh, I always find the, the history, I know there was a, you know, this, this new virus that we have, when I was talking to my, my brother, who's a physician, you know, I was talking to him about how compared to H1N1, and he said, well, it, that was a flu, and this is, this is a cold virus. Right. And, um, I, you know, I never knew the distinction. Um, and, uh, but, yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see how our country and the other countries of the world has handled this. But I think a review of the past flus that have taken over the world, um, you know, I, just reading that Washington book, um, you know, Washington, you know, went through a ton of different illnesses, malaria, dysentery, uh, I think even maybe even a smallpox, um, you know, how those things ravaged the U.S. even back in the, you know, in the 1700s. Right. No. So it's, it's it, that's what I like about history. History, like, tells you that things that you think are unique to your your era, really most things, not all things have happened in one degree or another in the past. And I think you can glean and learn certain things from the past to help you maybe in the future. I'm not sure if we, we can do it here, but I think uh, certainly how leaders reacted to crises uh, is something I hope our leaders are taking a look at today. So um, interesting topic, but maybe something we can talk about later. But what I, what I wanted to do was introduce um, our listeners to uh, to you, I think you're a very fascinating person. Um, how I know Dan is, um, I've known Dan cause we, we actually met working at a homeless shelter, um, at from the two o'clock to six o'clock in the morning shift. And it's amazing the type of people you meet at those places because, uh, usually they're thinking about somebody else other than themselves. And, and Dan was one of those guys. And then we got talking about books and et cetera. And then eventually, um, Dan's son, Patrick, ended up working here uh, at our law firm, has been here for about six years and has surpassed me in, in, in as far as being a, a great trial lawyer. He's, he's uh, really, <laughs> really a great, great trial lawyer and, and uh, just an architect on how to do these things. But um, I wanted, I have to, to, I wanted have, to break down. I have to, I have to object, though, that uh, he surpassed you, Jeff. <laughs> There's no objection. There's no objection. Yes, okay. I'm, I'm right. running the courthouse here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, so, um, Dan, um, why don't you tell us your background? Um, where'd you grow up, your, your family? So I grew up uh, in an Irish Catholic family. I grew up in a small suburb about 12 miles west of Chicago called Bellwood. Uh, had three brothers, no sisters, and a mom and a dad. That's and that's where that's where I grew up. And Bellwood was kind of a working class community. We had a lot of factories and and, and things in that in that community. We're, we're, kind of I describe it as like a pink collar area. There were some white collar workers and a lot of blue collar workers. Where did your Where did your folks come from? Uh, my mother and father both came from Chicago. My mother's side, uh, her parents came directly from Ireland. So my grandmother was from uh, was from Ireland, from Gal the Galway area, and my my grandfather was from mayo westport is it's county mayo but it, the town is westport did did they get married in ireland and then come over here or did they get married no they actually no they actually they actually met in the united states uh, my grandmother was a maid up on the north side and my grandfather 
uh, drove a, a bus for the CTA or whatever the comparable agency was back then. And then they just met, they met kind of in, in, a, in a church parish. That's how they met. Wow. And how, how about your other, other set of grandparents? Uh, they were from down in a little bit uh, down in Ottawa, Illinois, LaSalle, Peru type area. Uh, I don't know them as well. I was very, very close with my mother's side. Uh, my, my grandfather and grandmother, uh, they lived in Florida. The other side, my father's parents lived in Florida f- for half of the year. They were, they were a little different. They were the, they were the lace curtain Irish <laughs> in our family. We, we were more of the shanty Irish. <laughs> well, so um, tell me about uh, your folks. What, what, what do they do for a living? So neither of my parents graduated from college, but my dad had done some college. He got involved in uh, the electrical industry, transformers, fuses, that type of a thing, uh, and did a lot of work in the steel mills uh, in Gary and Indiana and in the southeast side of Chicago. And my mother uh, graduated from high school, went to secretarial school, but basically she stayed at home with us at least for a majority of the time. And then you ended up, I'm assuming you went to, uh, tell me, tell me about your schooling. So I went to a Catholic grade school in Bellwood, St. Simeon's, which unfortunately is now closed. And then I went on to Fenwick High School in Oak Park, which was an all boys Catholic school run by the Dominican order. Uh, Then I went to, in college, I went to Illinois Benedictine, now called Benedictine University and went on to John Marshall Law School after that. So that must've been a pretty big day for your folks to, to, to have their son graduate from law school, huh? Yeah, well, college and law school. I mean, I was the first one in our family that graduated from college because I was the oldest. That was a big thing, not just for my mother and father, but for our, you know, aunts and uncles, etc. And that was was a big thing. Uh, That was something that was a goal that they had. They wanted their children to go to college to get ahead, as they said. Uh, And and so, yeah, it was absolutely. uh, And for my grandmother to see me graduate from law school was just amazing for her having come from Ireland, you know, and to see what, what had occurred once she came to America. It was unbelievable to her, really. So tell me how um, your, your career has developed. You, you, uh, um, you got out of, the, out of law school sometime in the 80s? I, I got out of law school in 1986. I worked for a very short time with a criminal defense lawyer, uh, but I had put in applications to want to either be a prosecutor or a public defender in DuPage County. And one day, uh, the public defender of DuPage County just happened to be at a seminar downtown. And he came in into my office in Chicago unannounced in 1987 and basically interviewed me. Uh, And shortly thereafter, got the job in the public defender's office and stayed there for about four and a half years. Uh, wherein I worked for another criminal defense lawyer after that for a couple of years. And basically since around 1993, I've had my own, my own practice. So I, I practice in an office with like five other lawyers. We're not partners or anything, but a lot of us do criminal work. So we help each other. So that's been about 27 years by my math. Uh, in private practice. Yes. I've been, I mean, I've been out doing, been practicing criminal law basically coming in 34 years now. Well, and so, um, so do you like what you do? I love what I do. I mean, it, it's, it's really, it's really great that you get to 
do jury trials and have people listen to you. You know, you captive audience. It's great to represent people that are accused, people that the government forces are kind of, you know, they've 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 got your client kind of in their sights. Uh, you get a chance to represent people. I really enjoy representing people, and, it, and it's people that you see oftentimes who are just devastated, have nowhere else to go, don't know what to do, uh, are judged by maybe the worst day of their life. So yeah, I really, I really do enjoy doing it and helping them and helping their families. One of the things that, uh, that, that I've done, uh, made a practice in our office is that if anybody, uh, of my clients, they call and they've got some sort of criminal defense any, anywhere from, you know, driving offenses to other times when, you know, they're, they're, they're basically going to cross paths with the forces of the state or local folks or even federal groups. I, I send them on to Dan for consultation. Um, where can they reach you, Dan? So I can be reached, uh, you mean like my phone number and yeah. email and things of that nature? Well, my yeah. phone number is 630-531-0015. I can be reached uh, at uh, email dcummi7705 at aol.com. I also have a Facebook page that uh, people can access by just Google. Um, that's about, that's, that, those are the ways generally. Okay, great. And then... Um... Tell me about the economics of it um, with respect to when somebody wants to call you or meet with you, what kind of fee structure are we talking about? Well, there's always a free consultation. So I have people come into the office and discuss their case with me and I'll spend as much time as they want. And that's not a, that's, that, that, that's, that's complimentary. That's not a charge. And then depending on the charge normally in criminal law, the history of what we've been doing and in our, in our practice there's usually a flat rate of some amount, depending on the case, you know, depending on the, the amount of hours. Okay. All right. So then, um, but the, the, the thing that I wanted to know was that if somebody wanted to call Dan Cummings that, and, and get a consultation, that's free, right? I'm not sure what that was there. Yeah. That, uh, that if somebody wanted to call Dan Cummings and, and reach out to you for a consultation, Absolutely. that's free, right? Okay, great. And uh, so there's no downside to calling you and, and at least consulting with you. And if you can't handle something either in the state or some other state, I'm sure you're in a network of people that, that does your line of yes, work. Yes, uh, I'm in the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. So I go to about three conferences a year uh, and I, I have access to lawyers in, in all 50 states that uh, do the kind of work that if you have a case in Michigan, as a matter of fact, I've handled cases in Michigan, federal cases where I'll get involved, but I'll 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 bring a lawyer in from the local area and handle the case uh, that way. So, you know, we we do it that way, or I just send send those people to those those lawyers in those states. One of the things I like to ask guests um, when I interview them is, you know, about some defining moments in their life. Um, are there a few that you can, you know, I know there's probably been a ton of different defining moments in your life, Dan, but are there, can, can you talk to me about one or two? Well, I think the, the, the biggest defining moment was growing up in the family that I grew up in and the relationship I had with my mother, who obviously had to steer five, five boys or men in her, in her household and just things that she would say and things that she would do, uh, identifying for me what was important and she always told us that uh, 
she said, no one's better than you, but you're not better than anybody else either. And that was an Irish thing, I think, because of the immigrant experience that they had had, that they always wanted us to try to, to get ahead uh, and do it fairly and squarely. And they, they truly believed both of my parents in the American dream. So growing up with them was very important. In addition, I had an uncle, uh, Uncle Pat, Pat Rogers, who was a, a great influence on my life. He was a high school teacher in the inner city of Chicago, uh, who was a tremendous reader, great athlete, smart guy, had been in the, in the Navy. We lived in the same town as him, and he was really a mentor to me uh, as far as reading and, and trying to, you know, beyond what my parents said, trying to become educated, to, to do something important uh, in terms of educating yourself and, and, and being able to help people in that regard. So he was important. So the, the question that I really want to know from you is, what got into you to become the voracious reader that you are? How, how old were you when you started saying, listen, I, this is really something that I really want to do? Well, I was probably in, in, you know, I don't know, probably high school, I would say, where I would go over and talk to my uncle. Because, again, as I said, they lived in the same town. And my best friend is his son, my cousin, Johnny Rogers. And we would discuss, he would recommend books for us to read. And, and, and then we would discuss them with him. And I just found it fascinating, you know, politics, history, economics. It was, it was, it was even more than what my parents uh, had really recommended. And he was reading these books and he was discussing these books with his students down at Wells High School in Chicago. So uh, I would say he is, was as influential really as, as even my parents. Well, so, um, and, and is he still living? No, he's not living. Uh, he, he had died recently. He was a character, though. He was uh, a boxing champion in the Navy. So he was like a really, what I really liked about him was he was, a, he was an athlete. Uh, he was a tough guy. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but also an intellectual. So I, I kind of liked that sort of, that sort of combination of, of things. You know, it, was, it wasn't like, Oh, if you were going to be smart and an intellectual, you couldn't also be an athlete or be, uh, or be a you know a, a a guy's guy. But that's that's what he was. So I, I I enjoyed him my whole life. So that he's kind of like what they would call a Renaissance man. Well, I think so. He was he was uh, yes. I mean, I yes, <laughs> that's true. I I don't know yeah. if he'd like that. I don't know if he actually liked that description of himself, but. Uh, uh, <laughs> You know, because when you talk about Renaissance man, he would describe stories because my my father and him were, were also good friends, you know, but they came they came from a, a really poor background in the city. And he would describe things like that. They would play tackle football in the street on the asphalt. And I, that, that doesn't strike me as <laughs> as a Renaissance man. I don't know if that that, that kind of computes. But uh, yeah, but they were they were in, they were interesting interesting guys my dad and my my uncle and and their group of friends which i would see them you know a couple times a year and they were fascinating people one of the things uh i always like to ask people um as well is uh, maybe a defining moment in your professional career i know that you've had a lot of trials some you know famous trials some you know famous cases etc but um sometimes you know it's it's when i interview people Sometimes it's a smaller case that they had that really meant something to somebody or that type of thing. But how about you? Can you share with us any, any one of the many defining moments of your career? Yeah, I, I, I think one of the cases that I'll, I'll never forget was a young man um, who w went to a Naperville high school 
who got involved with a guy and, and he, my, my client's role was basically driving this fella to a store where this fella would then go and, 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 and sell drugs. And my client would get 10 or $15 for driving him, having no idea of exactly what the guy was selling or how, how hooked up he was in this, in this, in this particular offense. And he got arrested one day uh, and he was looking at nine to 40 years. Okay. And this was like, these were like Naperville people, like people we know, uh, you know, neighbors uh, who had dreams of their child going to college. He was on the baseball team at the high school. It was just a devastating thing for these, for these parents. And and ultimately uh, through a lot of litigation and a lot of work, we were able to actually get the case down to a misdemeanor where the kid got court supervision and ultimately had the arrest expunged, et cetera. And I still hear from these people all the time about having, you know, <laughs> having basically, you know, saved the, you know, the way they say to save their son's life. So th- those are, those are important cases because it, you, it really shows you the impact you, you could have in, in particular cases and how, how things can go one way or another, depending on kind of work that you do. So that was a case that I was I was very proud of, to be honest with you, and made me reflect on how important what it is we do is. So I don't know if that answers it for you, but no, that's that that is exactly what I'm talking about. I you know some of the some of the um, things that I that, that I try and think about is that um, every single case that that our firm represents somebody is these people's most important thing in their life. No, no absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You know, one, one of the things that, that, um, that we constantly think about is that every family is their own economy. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm arguing over economic issues with insurance companies and, and you're dealing with people that their freedom is in jeopardy they'll, they're going to be going, to live somewhere where they don't want to live for a long time and be told to get up, to eat, to go to sleep, to move by somebody else over and over again. And to me, that is an awesome uh, responsibility to take on the state because typically I'm assuming your first call or when you talk to the police officers or the prosecuting attorneys, they're telling you there's no way you're going to win the case, right? There's no way you're going to win the case. And in a lot of cases, there's no way you're going to avoid jail. And there's no way you're going to avoid a conviction. Obviously, they, they believe in their cases when they file them. Uh, but I, and the point that you were making about how important each case is for each client, I, you know, I probably handled the, you know, over 20 murder cases in my career. And I've realized that every case for my client is a murder case. In other words, it's every case. It may not be a murder case. It may be a driving while license revoked case. It may be a DUI case. It may be a theft case. But for them, literally, it's the most important thing going in their life. Because if something bad happens, and it's not just going to jail, it could be the the collateral consequences of a conviction, like a theft conviction. How are you going to work? Are you going to be able to vote? Uh, all of those kinds of things. So it's, it is very significant. I really do understand what you're saying is how important it is to each client, their case, even though it might not be the biggest case in your office, it's their biggest case. 
Uh, so I want to close out this interview with uh, just a, a couple of um, questions for you about how do you think that with this, uh, you know, I, people, I guess, gripe about the millennial ge generation and, and they, you know, to me, I, I, I don't get it because, you know, I've got six kids and, and they're everything from, I don't even know, Gen Z, Gen X, and I'm, I'm a baby boomer technically. Um, we have everything in between. Uh, and I, I just don't see people as a certain generation or anything, but how do you think we can inspire younger folks uh, to, to read? Well, to, you mean to read books and to read papers? Yes. I, I, well, read, I think because, read look, books. Yeah, well, we, goes, I mean to well, actually I mean, read books. Look, look, I think that we all are citizens of the world. That might sound corny, but we really need to understand what's going on in the world around us. How are we going to know what's going on in the world around us? Uh, it's not going to be just by going on Twitter. Uh, it's going to be reading, reading the New York Times, reading the Wall Street Journal, reading uh, the Chicago Tribune, finding out what's going on around you. Uh, and then, of course, for me, reading history, finding out what happened in history. Is this really that unique of a situation that we're in? Is this, do, have, has this type of thing occurred in the past? These things can inform how we should govern, how we should lead, how we should deal with people in the future. Very little that occurs today has never happened in any form in the past. Normally, it's occurred in the past, and in the human condition, we've had to deal with it before. So, to me, I just think it's it's absolutely crucial uh, to read and to understand and to learn. That's great. And then, so we'll close up with this last question. Tell me about. Um, I know that you and Regina uh, have been traveling a little bit, uh, and um, tell me about one. And I know you've probably seen a ton of places that you really liked, but tell me about a place that you really liked for the history of it and, and how much you enjoyed it and that, that type of thing um, that, that you've, you've visited in your lifetime. Well, probably the two places I've enjoyed the most are New York and Paris um, because of the history of both those places. And, and the nice thing is when I do go to those places, I read about those places before I go there because from that perspective, then you can kind of understand it actually, it actually makes you want to read about the place. Terrace is extremely beautiful. There's, there's, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of, you know, marble white buildings. They basically sweep the streets and clean the streets every day, at least in the downtown area that, that, that we were in. Um, so I, it's it just, it's just, it's just marvelous. And I, I, I really enjoyed traveling and reading about places that I go to. And then New York. Tell me, tell me about the best historical place that you went to in New York. Well, the, I don't know if this is a historical place in the sense because it's relatively new history, but 9-11, 9-11 was one of the seminal museum at, in New York, very near where 9-11 occurred. And it's a fabulous museum. I mean, it's, it's, I would recommend anybody that goes to New York to go there because it really, it, it really captures what happened that day. And, and I don't know that the world's ever going to be the same since 9-11. So I think it's very valuable to go there. And then to close out, what's your view on, on what, where we're going as a country in the next five years? What, what, what do you think is going to be happening in the next five years? Well, I'm an optimist, Joe. So I, 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 you know, I think that uh, 
you know, we're in a transition period where uh, we are, we've lost a lot of our manufacturing jobs and things of that nature. Hopefully we'll get some of those back. Um, but I'm an optimist. I think uh, I like you, I, I think the, I, I know a lot of younger people, my son, his, my, my daughter, my other son and their friends that make me optimistic about America. There's a lot of really good young people that are doing a lot of tremendous things. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Hopefully we'll get through this crisis here and then we can, uh, the best is yet to come is what I would hope. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm, I'm definitely going to have you back because, uh, you know, the world's most interesting man <laughs> is right here in Naperville, Dan Cummings. And so we will, we will get, get uh, together again and chat. Thank, thank you, you, Joe. So much. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.